Previously on Storylogical. <laughs> okay, one more time. From the top. This time with feeling. Uh, once, once more with feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Am I allowed to paraphrase? There's no such thing as paraphrasing. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Yoda said. Yoda said, Yoda said, uh, quote or misquote. There is no paraphrase. <laughs> oh my God. Nailed it. <laughs> this is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. <laughs> We've got new. We've got a new mic arrangement this week, listeners, which means that I can actually look at Chris rather than sitting next to him while recording. And I'm not sure it's the best idea we've ever had. No, and, and readers, uh, what it means for me is that without my glasses on, I can't see him anymore, <laughs> uh, which just works out pretty well for me. Because really, the only person I see in my mind right now is you. This week, readers, we're discussing Binti by Nedia Korafor. It is our one and only story for discussion because it is both long and brilliant. Um, and I'm going to kick us off with a summary. This is a science fiction story set in a kind of middling far future where interstellar travel is the norm. The galaxy is populated with hundreds of different species and it centers on a himba girl called Binti who has won a scholarship to Umza University, a university on a different planet. Her family, though, they don't want her to leave. Uh, she comes from uh, a people who don't travel, the Himba people, and she's uh, a master harmonizer. So her, she and her family, they make these things called astrolabes, um, which are kind of like the modern personal pocket computer of the future. Um, and she is someone as a master harmonizer that can communicate with and control electronics and atoms through this kind of mathematical trance that she can go into. I like I like astrolabe. I pronounce it in my head astrolab, but that feels like it's probably wrong. Um, I looked it up by the way, and astrolabe is a real thing. It's an yes, yes, it is. No, <laughs> this it... is much like the conversation a few weeks ago when I was like, <laughs> "It's amazing because there's all these punk words, but then there's <laughs> these scatterings of words across Scottish, English, and New Zealand, yeah. which you seem to know all of. I guess because New Zealand takes a lot of words from." Mm-hmm. Um, I, didn't, I had no idea an astrolabe was a real thing. It felt yes. deeply familiar. It's and I was like, has she created this idea? No, no, it's all in the British Museum. It's a very particular old object. And it's actually, I love that it was called the astrolabe because we call our personal pocket computers phones, which is an archaic term referring to an old piece of technology, which no longer accurately defines what we mm -hmm. carry around with us. Mm -hmm. But an astrolabe was a thing that measured the position of the planets in the, in the universe. And so it was a positioning tool. Mm -hmm. So it actually... Feels makes like sense that it's got GPS and communications yeah, yeah, right. and everything else embedded because, in it. Because it doesn't just center us, our, our personal pocket computers no longer just center us in a, in a cosmic sense, but they center us in like a, an emotional and cultural sense as mm -hmm. well. So astro, astrolabe feels like an archaic term that is a more accurate depiction of the thing in our pocket. And I feel like from now on, that is how I will refer to my phone. <laughs> Oh, so the story opens with Binti leaving home and travelling to the spaceport. And on the journey between Earth and the university planet, Binti's ship is attacked by a group of Medusa. Medusa? Medusa. What did you go for in that pronunciation in your mind? I, I went for Medusa mm -hmm. because the spelling of Medusa is with an A. Right. And I believe this is the practice of naming aliens after 
ancient myth uh-huh. such that you can conjure the image. So in this yeah, case, exactly. the Medusa have the tentacles yeah. that hang down, and Medusa has the the, the hair with the tentacle snake things. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole thing going on here about the embodiment of hair and shame when it comes to certain uh, racial identities, and and it's a it's a thing going on. So you went for Medusa. <laughs> Yes, so I went for Medusa. So the Medusa are an alien race who've long been at war with the humans, and uh, they are planning to attack the university to retrieve their leader's stinger, which was stolen by a bunch of academics and is in a showcase at the university. So in the initial attack, Binti is saved from their murderous rampage by a, an artifact that she carries that she calls her Aidan. Though everyone is killed right in front of her, so her very best friend and promising love interest splatters his blood all over her face Mm -hmm. i just sunk into uh, all of the news reports about attacks in in lebanon and in paris and everywhere and and that feeling of of an eruption of violence into Mm. a place of calm and what it seems safe the story doesn't back away from the horror of that moment in any way yeah and she continues to be horrified by it and by the process and by the people who would do such a thing to her friends and I like the way that she so slowly comes out of that kind of uh, wrap of fear to to learn to trust them. You know, she I found that journey very realistic. It reminded me um, several weeks ago we discussed a story in the New Yorker called The Philosophers, and we talked about empathy and privilege and that journey that you're talking about about the journey of connection between the Medusa and Binti reminded me of an article that we linked to in the Atlantic on empathy and privilege. What the author was saying was these two different ideas of empathy put forward on the one hand by Barack Obama and on the other hand by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And Barack Obama's image was, was an image of stepping away from yourself and into the shoes of someone else and being able to disconnect from your body and experience when someone else was experiencing. Mm-hmm. And the article described Ta-Nehisi Coates' feelings of empathy or feelings about being a black man in America was both a very embodied but a, and a very and erased kind of existence, such that you live in a, in a place where violence and shame is put upon your body and upon your community, but at the same time you're not seen as human by the larger community. And I thought the journey of the connection between the Medusa and Binti in the story kind of comes from a of a place where she has had this violence done upon her community and to a certain extent done upon herself, and her journey to be able to connect with these people that have done this violence to her takes a long process before she can let go of that violence, to let go of that attack Mm -hmm. that was on her before she can even begin to try to understand and think about their emotions. Yeah. That, that journey through to trust is really gets at the crux of something that is so beautifully powerful about this story. So Binti has these two very powerful um, items in her possession. So she has the Edan, which kills the uh, Medusa, and she also has a jar of ojize paste, which is what Himba women uh, cover their skin and their hair in uh, as a symbol of, not a symbol of anything. Wait, wait, that is interesting. That image, that the clay made from the earth of your home and placed upon the skin and placed upon the hair, it's all real. And at the same time, also works as a symbol because it's seen as a source of shame from people outside. In a way, is it? Is it? It's a. It's a mark of difference. It is something that other, the larger, more dominant culture, which in the story is called the Kush, you see, is dirty. Mm-hmm. But in the story, that substance, 
it's a source of power, it's a source of pride, and it's a source of healing. And it's that thing that was a mark of shame that she uses to to both literally and figuratively heal old wounds because she that substance can heal the withered tentacle of a Medusa that comes to mm-hmm. her. And also through that experience can help heal the divide between the humans and the Medusa. Right, and it's her choice to do that, which is what I find most exciting about this story, right? Because like I was saying, she... She carries the Edan and she carries the Ojiza paste and she has the power to heal or she has the power to hurt. And then what happens is she goes through this this journey of understanding, this journey of empathizing, and she chooses the path of healing her previous enemies. And that may be a painful process for her. It is a painful process for her. It may be far out of the reach of most of us and the way we ever imagined we could be. But it is and so inspiring to see in this story. And, and she sells it very beautifully and very believably. And it, I left the story feeling like, God damn, if I was in that position, I hope I made the same choice. Yeah, yeah. I, I love how inspiring the story was, how much the story empowered the idea of identity and the idea of, of cultural narratives and histories that need to be that need to be maintained and how the, the idea of diversity is not just powerful and essential to us as individuals, but to somehow to the universe, because you never know when you might need a, a piece of some culture to help heal alien tentacles and somehow avert tragedy. Um, I love that because this was the the first instance of a woman from from her her region and her people going out into space and going out. And so if she had never gone out to meet the world, then these two people would have never found a way to connect. And and that relationship between her and the Medusa who becomes her friend, Oku, is one of the most delicate and beautiful parts of the story. Um, but early on when they see each other, I'm just going to read a passage of when she when she really starts to begin on that journey of, of seeing these Medus for, for the people that they really are. It paused for a long moment, and I just stared at it, really looked at the thing. It moved as if it had a front and a back, and though it seemed to be fully transparent, I could not see its solid white stinger within the drapes of hanging tentacles. Whether it was thinking about what I'd said, or considering how best to kill me, I didn't know. And at that point, she's still totally terrified, she doesn't understand anything about them, but what she's choosing to do is to look and to try to learn and to try to really see who they are. The idea of the the importance and the power of seeing individuals inside of a collective. There are several moments in the story where we see Binti name or declare herself as someone who matters, whose name carries an important aspect of who she is and her lineage of family and culture. And there, there's a bit when she's threatened by the Medusa, you know, this people that right now she only sees as this collective of terrorizing monsters, where she screams her whole name. Uh, and then there's another bit after she survived the attack where she is alone in her room wondering if she's going to survive, where she just whispers into the floor, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And then later, when the Medusa come to her door and try to get in, they almost speak of her as though she's this, this shameful aspect that's just floating around in their plans, and as though, how is this voice in our head the voice of this human? There's no way a human can speak to us. It's some shameful, magical thing going on. But she shouts at them, I am speaking to you. 
me. And so again and again, both in her own story, Binti's story for herself, and you're right, like and in her relationship with Aku, there is that importance and necessity of recognizing and seeing the individual experience of another person there's this bit when okwu starts to look at her as well like this this is what's so beautiful about the story it's it's deeply deeply in her perspective but you see the growth of the other characters around her as well so okwu says you don't look like a human umza uni student it said your color is darker and you it blasted out a large plume of gas and i fought not to wrinkle my nose you don't have a kwoku I frowned at the unfamiliar word. What is a kwoku? And of course, the, the Medusa is referring to its tentacles, and she and is kind of saying, "Look, we're similar. You you have this these beautiful hair hair plaits, and I have these a kwoku, and they're kind of the same thing." It occurred to me when I after I finished the story that the story's narrative is one of of reconciliation. It's her existence that that heals the old wounds between the humans and the Medusa, and she's a master harmonizer. And I just suddenly realized that that is one definition of reconciliation it is to bring two disparate entities into into right, harmony that's what she says i can make harmony with anything i wanted to talk about drama and tension because so often in in short stories it's difficult to deliver something that is beautiful and a complete story and feels dramatic and full of tension right that's a it's hard to fit all of those things into a short story and admittedly this is 20,000 words and is a novella so she has a little more to play with but one of the things I enjoyed is that as well as being deceptively simple and beautifully written she she delivers those moments of tension and like we already spoke about with the when her her main crush is speared to death in, in her face and when she's trying to figure out what to do and how to how to deal with the fact that she's the only person apart from the pilot still alive on this ship and and she says i paced recited equations and was sure that if i didn't die of thirst or starvation i'd die by fire from the currents i'd nervously created and discharged to keep myself busy and that was such a beautiful description not only of her tension but also like so deeply from in her perspective as this master harmonizer as somebody that could go into a meditative mathematical trance i think i think it is often a choice conscious or unconscious whether or not you want to put tension in your story that there you know there's nothing stopping someone in a 2000 word story from writing beautifully with tense moments but i do notice a trend in all of the fiction that i'm reading of where a lot of, of short stories are aimed at a, a poetic description of a series of events that carry with it an atmosphere and an emotional, an emotional framework, mm-hmm. but, is, but is less interested in, in drawing out moments of, of tension or, or sometimes even conflict. For a minute, that's just, Emma, have you ever heard the expression, you know, don't call, don't call a rabbit a smirp? You have heard that expression. That expression, I don't care for it. I don't care for it. And and this is this is a story where it made me think, yeah, this is why I don't care for it. Because, sure, when I hear people say, don't call a rabbit a smear, I understand the idea is don't be lazy in your world building. You know, don't just name these things that are the same thing on earth, something else, and say you've done your world building. But I feel like that that expression is used lazily, to this idea of, of don't make it hard on me to read your story. Don't call things other names just because you feel like it. And I feel like that totally erases like the cultural power of naming things. 
such that if you say, you know, don't call a rabbit a smear, it in a sense is saying, you know, don't go making up your own name for this thing that I already have a name for that comes from my culture and my context, and that's the one I want to privilege. So don't pretend that, that your name means anything. Don't pretend that naming it something else might say something about your culture. Mm-hmm. That is why it's important in the story that she says, you know, I am this person. That's why it's so cool that in that moment with the Meduse, when they say you do have the a koku, and that that word isn't being translated because it's not exactly the same thing. He's saying that she has it. They are using the name from their culture to refer to her, and that is a moment of connection. There are moments in the story that drew me to that idea of a kind of cultural imperialism. Because the Medusa are upset, and they are launching this attack, because the humans have stolen the stinger from their chief and put it on display in a museum. And I thought, wow, there we go, there we go again with something that is not a symbol, but is symbolic. Like in the sense, this is literally a piece of this person's body that has been stolen, that has been claimed by another culture, and both exoticized as some object of a kind of academic interest of like, ooh, look at this cool thing that we have in our museum, and also has been has been stolen from the person. Anyway, that, that is what made, made me think about the, the smear up and the rabbit thing, about the, the cultural power of naming and that kind of imperialist idea that I feel like underlines that idea of don't go naming things different from what I know. And, and I think that idea of cultural... Um integrity is absolutely at the heart of this story not just in the story itself but in the in the writing and the way that Nnedi Okorafor has written about a culture that is not her own right so she is Nigerian American and she's written about uh, a girl who is Himba which is um, a group of people who come from Namibia but I think that she okay I'm not Himba myself but it seems like what she's done is a very um, exciting and intimate and, and valuable portrayal of somebody from this culture. And I think I wanted to get into a little bit about writing the other and just a couple of thoughts I had on what she'd done that, that made that such a successful uh, portrayal. So I don't know what your thoughts are, but these are these are three things I think that she did that meant that it meant that it worked really well. Did you make a list? I made a list. Oh, look at that. <laughs> so first of all, right, she places Binti, this this girl from the from a culture other than her own, right at the centre of the story. She has interiority, she has wants, desires desires, fears, and she has agency. She chooses what happens to her and she has an arc. So she's not there just as decoration or to exoticize somebody else's story. And I think that that is absolutely fundamental to, you know, one of the, one of the ideals of, of writing the other. Is, is you cannot make them a side character in your story. You can make them a side character, but not for the um, purpose of exotification. Or just to just to make it look cool, right? They need that interiority and that that personality. Okay. So second, Himba women have this very distinctive look. So they cover themselves in the paste, and they cover their hair plaits in the paste as well. Um, and Nettie talks about this not just at a surface level, not just in the way it looks to other people, but really digs down into what it means to Binti. To, to have this pace that covers herself and even, you know, her experimentation as a teenager where she went to the lake and washed washed the Ojize off with her friends because that was kind of 
a forbidden thing to do and it just seemed like she really explored what it meant to Binti and in terms of her connection to home her marriageability and then also in the conclusion to the story what it meant for how she'd really grown and moved on and and sure she was sad but she was figuring out how to make the paste from ingredients in her new home as well the third thing is that she really integrates current himba beliefs and practices into a view of the future and what binti's family do like how her plats are not just plats but they're arranged in a mathematical formula like she's she's taken this culture and and what seems to me in a respectful way thought about how it might extend into the future and into you know what a science fictional world that that these people lived in might be like would you say there is a difference between writing a good character and writing the other in a way that is respectful? Probably, because I think if you're writing in someone else's culture, you're, it's probably not going to be respectful if you talk about characters who are... Um, oh, I don't know how to put it, really. A moment of tension as we wait. <laughs> I don't I don't feel able to to put it into words. I, you know, I can totally see that to an extent they're very much the same thing because it's about giving characters depth and realism and ownership over what they do. Um but I feel like somehow if you're writing from somebody else's culture, you you have to be doubly sensitive to the decisions that you're making and understanding how those decisions reflect uh into that culture and back on your character whereas if you're doing it inside of your own culture you're kind of doing that stuff intuitively so it might not look different on the page but the thought process that you have to go through i think is probably very different i hope that when writers write from within their own culture they would treat it in the same way if you were writing within your own culture you would still treat it as though you were writing the other because those choices you make for that character that happens to come from your culture still reflects on the character and the larger culture everything you write has that same political power whether you're writing from within your own culture or writing about someone from another culture I don't know, that, get, that gets into a very uh, difficult place that I would enjoy writing a Louis-type episode about. I felt like your description of what was important about writing the other felt like, to me, what should be important about writing any character in terms of the choices you make reflecting on that individual and reflecting on the culture from which they come from. Because there's no way to exist in the world without being an individual and being part I, uh, a I whole fully, intersection of different cultures. Fully accept that, but I think that so many of the ways in which that happen, when you're thinking about your own culture, that it's just so ingrained that it's really hard to step back and actually think about what those things are. I think that's your job. <laughs> I totally is. I agree, but I'm just, I'm, I'm a hundred percent expect that there are assumptions in both your and my work and statements that we are not aware of. I don't want to leave this podcast without just discussing how such a well-put-together story it is that it begins with her attempting to some lack of success to kick off from her home in a, in a clean, easy way because she's got she's to really work on that transporter to make it work. And it's really hard to leave home. And again and again, there's a very clear through line 
in the story the idea of how hard it is to leave home up until the point where it's really hard to get the transporter to work. And then when she gets to the, the planet where the university is and there, there isn't necessarily the clay there that is from her home to make the paste, when she takes a shower and it's the last bit of paste and it washes off and it runs down through the drain, she's thinking about that sense of losing that connection to home. And then when she, when ultimately the last moment of the story is her calling home and just the last lines, the first person that answered was my mother. And so you have this, the, the beautiful shaping around the story about this, not, not just the connection to home, but the conflict that in order for her to save the day, in order for her to be a hero, she has to leave home. And in leaving home, um, there is that deep struggle with the sense that her family is so upset with her for leaving. And her own sense of, I'm upset to leave, but I have to leave. That is what I want to do. I want to go out and encounter the world. I think it's perfect that it that it ends on that phone call. It, it could easily have either ended, you know, when she saves the day with the as the in the ambassadorial role, or even with the kind of denouement discussion of uh, that she has with Okwu, who's now a student at Umsa University. But but she chooses to end it on that call where it has that moment of, of circularity. Not only does it have a moment of circularity, let's say it's a word, but it ends on the importance of Binti's personal experience. It ends on the importance of who she is and what her past is and what her home is. And that has been both the power and the pain of the story for her of leaving home and those elements of home being what allows her to create this harmony and reconciliation in the universe. I don't think we can leave the story without recognizing that, the, to me, the, the strongest image of that pain is that in order to be recognized by the Medusa as an ambassador and in order for the Medusa to believe that Binti will be seen as an ambassador by the humans as they take her hair away from her and replace it with their kind of tentacles such that can, she can be seen as an image of connection between the two races and be seen as an element of trust. And I thought, wow, the the, the idea of embodiment has been so important in the story. And that, and that sacrifice has been made without her knowledge, such that the alien race in the story, the Medus, have violated her body and herself and her image as a mark of trust. And she has accepted this violation as an important or somehow excusable in such a way that she can still remain friends with Aku. And I thought... That is both powerful and troubling and it, because, it, because it troubled me. And it was difficult to reconcile that level of invasion and violation of her body in a story which was about the reconciliation and reclamation of the chief's body. Yeah. And I think that to me is what makes it powerful is that ultimately Nettie's choice about how to make this story end in an inspiring way involves a moment of real sacrifice an individual sacrifice in order to make these two races come together because because right it's it's not that easy you can't just say let's all let's all be empathetic with each other mm -hmm. and talk you're going to have to make some sacrifice of yourself and of your people maybe in order to actually reach reconciliation to reach harmony 
And I really, I really hope it doesn't have to be as radical as as re- replacing all my hair with tentacles. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Yeah, I'm not sure either. And just, just imagine, imagine on the phone if they have video phones and and Vinti's mom being like, "Your hair looks a little different," and Vinti being like, "That's a that's a long story, mom." Yeah. Dot dot dot. <laughs> so readers. I'm sure there is so much that we haven't covered about this story. Let us know uh, your thoughts too, because it is wonderful and there is uh, a depth and beauty to it that we could just talk about for hours. Mm. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Storyological. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like, oh, holy night. And logical. Like Aristotle. And you can also find links to all of our random references and our previous episodes. As well as appropriate gifts and to subscribe to our newsletter and this podcast. At our home on the web. At storylogical.com. See you next week. Happy reading. Okay. Are you ready, Emma? Three, two, one.